Monday night edition of the pod. Danny came up with this idea and I really like it. We're going to just take some quick looks at the teams in the central division, probably focus more on the bad teams than the good teams to just lay out what we think are the main issues that they're going to be facing over the next I don't know how long you'll call it three years four years try to figure out just in a ballpark sense what our plan would be for getting this team along the road towards being the best version of themselves whatever that's going to be or maybe a best version of someone else if uh if the current personnel isn't that good before we get started though want to remind you about the covid daily news got a couple episodes of that out already this week that is on its own feed now still will be here for maybe a couple more but if you just search nate duncan in your podcast player of choice you should find it covid daily daily news and you can subscribe that way every podcast player i've tried that showed up my seo wasn't amazing because there are a lot of podcasts that have coronavirus and daily in it so and it's one of the smaller ones right now but hopefully with your help uh, that will change so please tell your friends about that if you think that it's uh, a worthwhile service uh, and of course to support that and everything that we do here patreon.com slash duncan larue is the best way to do that so why don't we get started here with some news danny yeah, um, I we'll, we'll talk about the team soon enough, but I think the most important, the most significant team news that we've had so far is the movement in the front office in Chicago. Uh, officially, Arturis Knishevis, is that the correct pronunciation? That's how I've had it in my head. Uh, yes, I believe that is correct. He is in the title for now is Executive Vice President of Basketball Operations. Gar Foreman is no longer with the Bulls after 22 years with the franchise. Paxson is now in an advisory role, and they hired J.J. Polk and Pat Connolly, who is Tim Connolly's brother. They're both going to be in the front office, but neither of them is going to be the general manager. That is still a spot that Kornishevitz is interviewing and going to hire somebody you know in the near term yeah and to be clear you know this is kind of the president of basketball operations we've seen title inflation that's basically what the gm has always been the gm now is what the assistant gm has always been yeah like Except- the, the, the way the way that i like to to do it and i mean this Kardashevitz was an interesting example of this is who is the decider like who who is the person who is making those decisions on who to draft and that's going to be Kardashevitz so whatever his title is the per, the job below that is functionally assistant GM yeah Kardashevitz was on the 1992 Lithuanian national team that played against the dream team got a bronze medal there uh, had a long career in Europe uh began I believe in the Houston Rockets organization he's credited by Daryl Morey as being one of the best for revolutionizing their european scouting since he moved to denver under Connolly, he has uh really spearheaded their efforts there as well though they have some great scouts working for them rafa Juk does a, a really good job there as well so yeah sorry i'm a little I, I did one of those solo covid daily news today so i'm a little fried already but we did see a lot of people who in theory didn't want to interview it seemed like arturis was the main focus from the beginning and this is one of the more reported on and public executive searches that we've had in a while just because nothing is going on right now usually the bulls keep it pretty close to the vest but that hasn't been the case this time so we'll see he said he's going to take his time jim boylan is going to be evaluated my guess would be that he will not in fact be retained uh, at least uh, after this season if not before there's a resumption if we do have a conclusion to the 1920 season 
some news for upcoming free agency according to jason jones the athletic re-signing restricted free agent bogdan bogdanovich will be the king's top priority this season that makes sense that it was augured by the trade that they made to offload the salary of Dwayne deadman give themselves more room under the luxury tax now what does that mean for buddy healed who also signed a, a pretty big deal over 20 million dollars a year that doesn't even kick in until this summer it's a, a four-year pact that'd be interesting you would think if they're gonna pay big big money to both of those guys one of them could be on the move well and and with bogdanovich another reason you signal that a re-signing a player who's a restricted free agent is your priority is you're trying to scare off teams that could potentially make an offer sheet because we don't know exactly what the timing and structure are going to be of the 2020 offseason but there will be a waiting period there will be a matching period all those all those elements will be in play however this works and there are very few teams with cap space and signaling that you are going to match makes those teams more reluctant to use that as a way of doing their money but also remember that it signals to teams that could potentially be interested in a sign-in trade that you're not interested in that and it obviously requires the kings to be involved to do that so it's not tampering i don't think but it is you know it is a signaling that is meant to depress a player's market and could have a material effect now this isn't something that is surprising to us i mean the kings this was a part of their avowed rationale for making the deadman trade and it's pretty obvious considering the lack of flexibility they have but when you start to game this out, I mean, we're we're a ways from the mock-off season considering we don't even know where the cap's going to be. But I've been writing these off-season, you know, the wing preview and all that for the, for the Athletic recently. And something that struck me with Bogdanovich in particular, and this is sort of true of Fournier, but Fournier is unrestricted, is just gaming out who is even going to be a bidder for an offer sheet. And it's a challenge. Sure. Now, one thing that helps Bogdanovich is that his qualifying offer is much bigger. It's be 125 percent of the 8.5 million. So, actually, taking the qualifying offer is you know, which will be over 10 million dollars. He's in a much better situation than a lot of these players who are coming off their first contract don't have nearly as big of a qualifying offer. And then, of course, he could be unrestricted. And to be clear, after some discussions with the union the nba says no you are not allowed to specifically publicly come out on record and say that we will match any offer because that does depress the market and the players association rightfully complained about that but this was a anonymous sourcing so and and saying it's your reciting him as your top priority is not saying you will match any offer it's just saying it's important to us now serge ibaka was asked about his impending free agency his quote i'm going to stay bro this place is beautiful. It's a beautiful city, beautiful people here. And then we have one of the best teams. Why leave? Now, who knows what they're willing to offer him. I would be very surprised if they offer him more than a one-year deal. Perhaps they might, if he comes at a discount, they might go longer if they see it as an, an asset that could potentially be moved. Ibaka would actually be eligible for a no-trade clause, amazingly enough, uh, as a, a player with eight years of experience and four years uh, with the same team. is really three and a half, but that, that gets you there. I don't think they'll be giving him that. Very few players have ever had that. We saw how poorly that worked out for the Knicks when they gave Carmel Anthony a no trade, but he would technically be eligible for it. Well, and then well in actually, I want to say one more yeah, thing. That, the the yeah. Ibaka statement here is something that I was more focused on in terms of his front court teammate, Marcus Gasol, where players who've made a lot of money over their careers can prioritize really any number of different things in free agency. And one of them is just stability, being somewhere that you're happy. And Ibaka will have other considerations considering it looks like the Rocket, the Raptors, sorry, want to be flexible, want to be players potentially in 2021. But 
if that's something that he wants, more power to him to consider that for free agency. I mean, I think every player should do what's best for them, whatever whatever they choose to value. Now we'll shift to Washington. Bradley Beal went on Zach Lowe's podcast. He, he expressed his enjoyment of the situation in Washington and maybe gave a little bit of a look into why he signed that extension and why Washington didn't look to move. And he basically, he noted that the Wizards gave him the keys. He said he loves his role in Washington. He said if he moved somewhere else, he wouldn't necessarily be the centerpiece. So it seems that he enjoys being the centerpiece and wants to try and build something with him as the centerpiece. I'm not sure that he is good enough to build a really good team with him as the centerpiece, but uh, he says he likes what the, the Wizards are doing. So that would seem to indicate that a trade of him is not imminent and tommy shepherd said that the wizards plan to retain unrestricted free agent shaz napier in free agency they will have early bird rights on him should they like to want to do that worth uh, noting and- that he would be at least in terms of contract their third point guard because john wall retur- returning for the 2021 season and Ish Smith got a two-year guarantee, so unless they trade Ish Smith, Napier would be their third point guard. And the Wizards have the flexibility to bring him back. Napier's been making the minimum or thereabouts for a little while now. But yeah, they can bring him back by all means. Yeah, I think Napier is better than Ish Smith at this point, personally, just due to his shooting. Tragic news regarding the mother of Carl Anthony Towns. She has passed away. We mentioned that he, in a tearful Instagram message a few weeks ago, had mentioned that she was in a medically induced coma, was put on a ventilator. Unfortunately, she has succumbed now to COVID-19. And not much to say about that other than it just shows that the virus can affect anyone. And it also gives you an idea of what the stakes are as the NBA tries to return to play, that if the virus does get spread around as a result of even within the nba community with the, these fit athletes if one of them is infected they are their families are at risk as well so that's a, a sobering reminder of what we are facing here as the nba tries to get back other league news here some news about that brian windorse has been all over but it seems the general gist of his reporting is that the league and the players are going to try to preserve the cap for next season not have a big reduction there's a number of ways they could do that number one is just preserving the revenue for next year there you can just agree on what it would be maybe there'll be some safeguards involved there where the cap is nominally kept at the same number but you would have a larger escrow system than they do now with the 10 percent that would allow the league to recoup money if there is a revenue shortfall compared to what the cap would indicate and to the extent that teams are expecting that next year could start on time Santa Clara County Executive Officer Jeffrey Smith, and recall that Santa Clara County was the first county in the U.S., that's where uh, San Jose, California, the San Jose Sharks play there, to effectively ban professional sports events. And so Mr. Smith told the LA Times that he doubts California will host any major sporting events until at least Thanksgiving, and that we'd be lucky to have them by Thanksgiving. Um, So that is definitely, when you're talking about NBA revenue, even if they can figure out a way to play games, to do it with fans and of course there are four teams in the state of california or five nope four i'm wrong yeah you're thinking of baseball right yep <laughs> one of the best interjections ever <laughs> on, on this podcast well see, uh, it's funny i'm so cognizant of forgetting sacramento that i forgot that there's only one team in the bay area 
The other thing uh, that Windhorse is reporting is a back-to-basketball plan. If there is a go-ahead, they're looking at hopefully a 25-day return with an 11-day series of individual workouts where there's still social distancing, but players can return to facilities. And then if clearance comes, they could play five-on-five basketball, essentially a 14-day training camp that was noted on SportsCenter by Windhorse. And then Further reporting that teams are hoping the draft is pushed back to after August 1st at the earliest. And I think that's the right move. And there is a thought that, hey, you've got a captive audience. There's, if you run it at the usual time, there'll be all this attention on it. But and it's really just one night of ratings. Is that worth upending the whole league calendar and we've talked before about how difficult it would be if you're trying well, to yeah. we, we ran into it i think that was on the patreon mailbag where you and i were talking right. about going through it and you brought up the point of well how could you trade players and i went oh crap that's that's a really good point and yeah that is bobby marx has done a good job talking about this and numerous other people that the entire league structure is built around the draft occurring after the season is over and as you said, changing that for like one day of ratings, especially when if it's during if it's keeping at the same time and it's during a, a shutdown, then a lot of the other things can't be a part of it anyway. So then it's it isn't really a sustained buzz. It's really just that short period of time, and it's obviously not business as usual for anything else. So yeah, I'm in I'm in firm agreement that that should happen. It does create real logistical challenges for not only college players but also colleges. But that's their problem. You know, I, I think that we're de- we're dealing with uncertain terrain and the NBA needs to do right by themselves. And yeah, some players will have challenges. And Sam Vecini and I talked about that a couple weeks ago on Real GM Radio as well. People are interested. But it, you know, they're, they're going to be dealing with that either way and they need to make the right decision for themselves. Also noting some guidelines have been enacted. Teams are allowed to hold virtual meetings with NBA prospects, but they, of course, are not allowed to host in-person workouts or try to direct a video workout of the player remotely. Uh, And then last, it's reported that the NBA is going to pay players their full paychecks on April 15th. They are required to do that under the collective bargaining agreement. The only way that they could avoid that would be by actually canceling NBA games to enact that force majeure clause. That's what enables them to start clawing back some of that revenue but there has not been an agreement yet between the league and the players association of how they're going to handle that and so unless the nba wants to cancel games they are not within their rights to withhold the paychecks regardless of the fact that games haven't actually been going on they've officially been suspended rather than canceled although i'm sure no one actually expects that the full regular season slate will be concluded the league just doesn't want to go through that of canceling games and i would imagine there are probably some clauses in teams and the league's tv contracts that would be impacted with the formal cancellation of games as well that might be a disincentive to want to do that right now so we'll see this is going to be really interesting negotiation still between the league and the players association this is while everyone is going to take a haircut the players i think just due to the timing of this have a little bit more leverage than they do in ordinary cba negotiations all right let's take a quick break here then we'll get to our prescriptions for some of these teams in the central division right after this all right so what we're going to do here danny came up with just a a rubric to talk about just where these teams are at in the success cycle what we think their overall strategy should be this be a little different than your typical offseason preview because we're really kind of trying to look at more of a long-term plan here so 
which team would you like to start with? Oh, let's let's start with Chicago Bulls. I mean, we've just been working through it. They were the inspiration behind this. In my head, I call this the battle plan series just because we're thinking more big picture about where you're going through it. And I also think that the Bulls are a great starting point for what I think is the most important question. Like, So the way I've been thinking about this is, imagine that you and I independently were thrust into the job of key decision maker, whatever the job title, for this franchise. How would you be looking at the big pieces of this and how they fit together? And so that's why the first question for me, for, and we'll start with the Bulls, is who is and who should be their core? Yeah, that's a tough question because you could look at players on this team as, yeah, you know, that guy could be a quality starter going forward, but your overall goal as a franchise is at least to be a perennial playoff team at minimum, you would think. And and I mean, to me, I think your goal should be a team that at least has a chance of getting home court advantage in the playoffs in one series every year that to me is like your minimum goal as you're trying to build a team now there can only be eight of those teams every year so there are also many teams that aren't necessarily trying to win it it's a doable goal one that you should be shooting for and when we talk about this core i think some of these players could turn out to be quality starters but you'd say hey if you got the the most people would say their core four would be wendell carter zach levine larry markinen and kobe white None of those players to me appears to have superstar potential. And even if you would take all four of those players out to their most logical outcome, I don't think you have unless at least two of them really exceed expectations that I have for them at least to be that level of team that we're talking about that would have home court advantage in a playoff series. Right. Yeah, it, it is a real challenge. And I'll kind of blend this question in with the second one, which is what does that court do well? And then what flaws need to be helped with other players? And if, if we think of the core as Levine, Markinen, Carter, and White, you have a lot of offense-first players. You know, Mar- Carter is, is it has p- serious potential on the defensive end, but Zach Levine is offense-only. Kobe White has shown significantly more on that end than on the defensive end, and then Markinen, more offense than defense as well. And so, so one way that I was thinking about these kind of battle plan series is the different thresholds that there are. So like, okay, how can they get to be like a top-half offense, top-half defense, and then beyond that, like top 10 or truly elite or something like that? And so it's like, you know, that, that personnel, if you add somebody, who's capable and dynamic at the three you I think you could get to a respectable offense Kobe White can help key transition and then Levine does his thing if Markinen can get if his jump shot could be a little bit more reliable like if he is starter quality then that helps generate it and you and I both think Wendell Carter has a projectable jump shot even if it hasn't been there all the way since he arrived in the NBA the real other challenge to me is Sure, I think you can have an I think you can have an above average offense with that as your core. I, I don't really have much doubt in that, but I don't see the truly elite there. Like as because like elite, you need to be good in transition, but also be a capable half court offense. I don't think they're quite there. That we need a lot from that fifth starter, and then defensively, you're asking a lot of Wendell Carter and whoever the fifth starter is. Yeah, I agree with you. It's hard to see how you get to be that great. I think probably the plan is, this is what uh, Arturis's press conference today was uh, augured some of this, is they don't really have the flexibility to do anything this offseason. I might, you know, at least marketing is due for an extension. Unless you can get a great deal on that, I probably would try to hold off on that at this point. They don't really have much, you know, Otto Porter is going to be back. They didn't get to see this group together. Maybe White can take a step forward. Markkinen maybe can do better. Carter had that sprained ankle. And uh, Karnaschevis has been talking about 
uh, they really need to focus on player development. And so, all right, give that a year because you don't necessarily have any great options to improve significantly. Yes, I would certainly listen on Levine in particular if there's some value for him. I think he's a player who might be overrated by some teams uh, on two years left on that four-year $78 million deal that he signed in restricted free agency. So, uh, I mean, will be extension eligible too, but you could see if he has some value. You know, I don't think they missed him that much uh, when he's out and you can find these kind of volume scorer type of guys maybe at a lower price who wouldn't be as terrible defensively uh put put more into white's hands for an example so i i would look i would try to look to move him if that's not there you know and even if it's something along the lines of like a solid first round pick i think i might be willing to move levine at this point um well, like, I mean, my, yeah. for Levine, especially if we're thinking of him on this current contract, which expires in 2022, I don't think that there is this, like, untapped superstar engine of a successful offense in there for me. Like, I, I just don't see it. Maybe he could be an interesting complementary piece in a different offense if you can tone down his shot selection. I hear little faint echoes of the things we said about Anthony Edwards on the draft scout of, like, oh, if you can take out some of the bad shots he takes and some of the other stuff, like, it could be a different player. But the Bulls don't have the flexibility to test that until Levine hits free agency. So if you want somebody else to, I would let somebody else roll those dice, either that he can be that star or that he can be that complimentary player. If somebody evaluates it that way, if not, then yeah, maybe you keep him around. And I think the flexibility point is a really is a really good place to start. I mean, they the, the Bulls, assuming Otto Porter picks up his option, which we fully expect, they're not going to really have much spending power in the summer of 2020. And 2021 could open things up. They do have these partial guarantees for Thad Young and Sadoransky that uh, they they can make decisions on. They could also trade those players if somebody wants them at full price. But getting that year of evaluation, and I would say one of the other important goals of the 20-21 season should be looking at White, Markkanen, assuming they see him as part of the core, and, and Carter together without Levine. And if White can do enough to help goose the offense, then if you can get more, you know, lower usage but capable defensive players and Porter ideally would be a part of the solution at the three at the other spots that's a much easier lift to get the defense to credible you wouldn't have to rely on some of the scheme stuff that that Boylan tried and if they could get if though if they can get a reliable enough sample and get an understanding of how good White is a leading the show then I think the Levine conversation assuming a trade doesn't materialize this summer maybe at the deadline maybe in the off season of 2021 maybe you can think about that in a different way. Well, and also getting a better coach in as well. Yes. That's another important factor to evaluating these players. And maybe, especially if you have another injury hit year or something, maybe you even look to move guys if it's not working out at the trade deadline in uh, 2021. And because uh, ultimately my fear is this team, this core, you know, who knows who they'll get in the draft this year. Maybe they get lucky in the lottery or, you know, in this draft isn't supposed to be that good as we talked about. So that may not be a panacea, but ultimately, I think that they, they, the superstar who's going to get them to perennial playoff contention isn't on the team right now, and they need to accept that. And you have to do something that will get you that that player, and that's probably not going to be in free agency until they're good again, and it's probably going to have to be in the draft. And so maybe you just have to go with a reboot of the rebuild if you're not able to develop these players. And I think you just say, hey, you know what, we got three months here because we can't do anything this summer anyway for a new coach and this group 
to prove that they are going to get us there. And if not, maybe you would move Levine, who would have only a year and a half left on his contract at that point anyway. Maybe maybe marketing you might move. You might try. Maybe you hold on to White and Carter. Maybe Porter could be traded if he's playing okay at that time. So that that's step one is you just continue the rebuilds uh, or option one. Option two, if they start to really show something, is you try to come up with a way to get that more firepower on the wing with 3 and D. Porter may be leaving. Presumably, if they have a good year next year, it'll, part of it will be because Porter is playing well, but you, you don't necessarily want to trust him from a health standpoint. So they'll maybe they try to find a piece you know, but in free agency in 2021, when they could have as much as $50 million, but that's always fraught with peril. You're going to end up overpaying for any sort of three and D type of player at that time. And it's a star studded group, but in in 2021, but a lot of those players are in good situations now. And the sales pitch for the bulls will be very difficult. You know, yeah, we're a good young team. There are other good young teams that are going to have money, including the Dallas Mavericks and the bulls are in a significant market, but I don't think that's going to be quite enough, especially because a lot of those guys already play in major markets, you know, the the L.A. guys and and then you have players all you have talented guys all in the New York. You know, you have some some player in, in there. And so I think that another important consideration as we're going through this battle plan is that you brought up Markkanen that he's going to be extension eligible after this season. And one of the what challenges for the Bulls in 21 is that absent an agreement, his cap hold is $20.2 million. And that's a bunch of money. And the only way to get that number off the books, if you want to keep him, is to either sign him to a new contract or match an offer sheet, which is functional, you know, signing him to the contract that somebody else signed him to. And that means if Chicago really wants to use cap space, maybe they can try to play the game like the Celtics did years ago with Kelly Olynyk and a few other ones where you try to find out in the first like four or five days of free agency what you're going to do, and then you go in that direction. But that, as a practical consideration, does not usually happen with players of Markkanen's stature. You know, that he was a, he was a lottery pick, was a high lottery pick, and has started a lot in his Bulls tenure. So maybe because... Karnishevitz is not the one who drafted him. Maybe they have the audacity to pull that off, but it is a big ask. All right, I think that's a, a good amount on these guys. Let's move on to the Detroit Pistons. And they will have cap space this summer after making the Andre Drummond trade. Right about $35 million or so, assuming that Tony Snell opts in. They'll have a small cap hold on Christian Wood, who it seems like they want to bring back. But as much as we talked about the Bulls not being in a, a great place, the Pistons really are looking at a couple of years of pain coming up here and rebuilding is a little harder now than it used to be because the lottery odds have flattened out. You can't count on getting a pick that's that high, but it seems like that's really the way that they're going to have to go. We'll see who they end up getting in the draft, but I mean, they really need help at every possible position. Maybe you could say center, but I mean, outside of Christian Wood and Siku Dumboya, both of whom profile more as support players, you're really hard pressed to find much with this group and you know Derek Rose will be a trade candidate you would think they wanted to bring him back maybe the offers weren't what they wanted but they could try to move him in the summer I think they wanted a first round pick they didn't get it I think even two good seconds would probably be enough because he he could also just get hurt at any time I think you need to just get what you can for him Luke Kennard will be extension eligible I think given some of his health issues and him just you know not being really I think a top 15 player at his position even when he's fully formed I think I would Wait on that potential extension, play the restricted free agent game with him. Svi Mikhailiuk maybe could be a, a decent bench shooting guard, but 
I mean, they're just they're going to have to build through the draft. It's really the only way I see to uh, you know maybe take on some bad contracts, get some more draft picks. But that's tough to do this year. Maybe they roll some space over the summer of twenty twenty one. I don't know. It's uh, it's they are early enough in the rebuild that the plan is kind of simple for them in some ways another important reason why i think the plan is simple in detroit is that i don't see a reasonable way that they can get out of where they are in the immediate you know they they right. can't they can't sign their way into contention <laughs> yeah the, there are unreasonable ways that uh, they've tried some of those in the past they they have and i think that <laughs> but fortunately ben gordon and charlie villanueva and josh, josh smith, smith are, uh, are are not on the free and, and thankfully josh smith's money is finally off their books this 2020 <laughs> 2020 will be the first year that he is not on there. It was actually it was kind of a weirdly like emotional moment when I took him off by XL of you getting into that. And the the good thing for the for the Pistons is that I do like some of their players as complimentary pieces. You brought up Dumbuya. This was his age nineteen season. He has lots of room to grow. Those bigger wings are hard to find, and I was shocked at how far he fell in the draft. And he didn't get to play a ton. You know, played in thirty eight games, started nineteen of them, played about twenty minutes a game. But I liked what we saw from him. And then Kennard. This was age 23 season. He only played in 28 games. That they also, I think they probably still want a little bit more time to evaluate Bruce Brown and Svi, which both of those players are on team-friendly contracts for next year. They're both non-guaranteed. I would assume they'll both be back at, at that sort of price, especially considering how many slots the the Pistons are going to have. That that's another part of this story is that they have after even clearing house partially during at the trade deadline. Knight, Henson, Galloway, and then Christian Wood is the exception because he's young enough and everything like that. And then Thon Maker, I wouldn't expect I wouldn't expect them to give Thon Maker a qualifying offer. Maybe you bring him back if he gets a reasonable cost and Dakota and Dwayne Casey wants him, that's fine. So they, you know, and I would say to an extent it's the same thing with Kyrie Thomas. I'm lower on Kyrie Thomas than Brown and Mikhailuk, and there is some overlap. You can't really play all three of those guys regularly, but you can play all three of them regularly if you don't have other dudes. So I think that's a consideration. But yeah, I mean, getting into the key idea of this was like, who is their core? Looking, you know, like the ideally it would be, you know, Blake Griffin and some of the Blake Griffin, Derek Rose, you could go with that. But the health concerns with those guys are so severe that I think you're, you're looking at it as a young core that the next great Pistons team will not have Blake Griffin as a key part. It will be more Dumbuya and I don't know what else because Kennard could be, but it, like I don't know that I would be thinking, oh yeah, we're penciling him in as a key piece long term. I think right now it's probably just Dumbuya and then what if you re-sign him, which they can and we'll see what the market is. And I mean, I think that there's a distinct chance Wood gets a reasonable salary just because nobody has cap space, but I don't know. Yeah, and I think Wood, he's not a game-changing type of player to me. You know, if you can go get him for something along the lines of like $10 million a year, then yeah, I think that's reasonable. But anything beyond that, I think I would be fine just moving on from him. And you're not in a position where you want to be just adding players on contracts that aren't particularly good ones uh, at this point in time. I mean, signing Christian Wood, I mean, he's he's a decent piece, but he's not getting you back to the playoffs. You know, he, he, can, he fits in around other players offensively. Where I think he can be very efficient, uh, but uh, and they still really need to evaluate him as a starter. So I, I think that'll be a reasonable amount uh, for him, though certainly. And and it is and it is really good news for the Pistons that while Blake Griffin, you know, is is one of the worst contracts in the league. At least it's only two more years after this one, and they don't have these long-standing obligations. I don't think there's any reason to like use the stretch provision if things really go poorly with with Griffin. I don't, especially with 2021 being such a saturated market in terms of teams with space. 
So just take your medicine, don't stretch it out, and figure out what's going on with with Canard and and with Rose. Yeah, I, I agree with you that if you can get a if you can get a solid return absolutely do it but I also don't think that Rose is so good at this juncture even though I picked him as you know my sixth man of the year that he will make them good enough to weaken their draft pick you know I, I don't think especially with, oh, I lot- agree with, you, with yeah. lottery reform it, there are certain circumstances where there's actually a greater impetus to move a veteran because they're hurting those efforts I don't think that he is the rising tide that can raise all boats and so yeah I mean with with the uh, the really powerful part of this for the Pistons and this will be arguably more true for them than almost any team in the NBA is that they should not they they should just in terms of value contracts and everything else just evaluate everybody on the merits don't think about how this player fits in with what you already have if you think they're good and like if it's a draft prospect or a player that for whatever reason is undervalued by the market because nobody has cap space just sign them and you'll figure everything else out later and that is actually a really weird benefit I was I was just talking about this I'm working on something on on the on the Hornets for uh, for uh, the athletic about the power that the few teams that have cap space and aren't good right now actually do have is they can say no and I hope that the Pistons do that and just identify value go for that and and make it work do you want to uh, anything else on Pistons we can go to the team that they traded Andre Drummond to because they're in division yeah so the Cavs I think my number one piece of advice would be to do exactly what they did last year and that is just draft the best player available and that would be the same to the Pistons and the Bulls as well frankly uh but the Cavs in particular once more they're just so far away from having a legitimate team uh certainly I would be looking to move Kevin Love for anything at all even if it were basically for free oh I'd be thrilled if I could move him for free (laughs) yeah but there are reports that they had an offer to take uh, take him from the Blazers and that they didn't do that now who knows exactly what the details of that were and they do have Drummond in theory for next year I uh, think he's probably gonna opt in to uh, 28.75 million dollars for next year and and you've got 60 million dollars in that starting front court re-signing Tristan Thompson doesn't really seem to make much sense to me unless it's a situation where you could Marcus Morris him you re-sign him and then you could move him if he's on a, a value deal for to a potential contender but you imagine but you don't in that to... case that unlike Marcus Morris you imagine that he would sign somewhere else because he's not going to have an opportunity as the third guy maybe the as the fourth guy in their front court yeah that's a good point now he resisted a buyout because they wanted to have bird rights maybe that's just for sign and trade purposes perhaps and they still have larry nance who uh, all of a sudden it seems like his best position might be the three at least on this team because they don't have any other threes this is it's just going to be a lot of pain for these guys they are but and the, the bulls to me are much more interesting than them because they're just so bad that it's like you know you just keep doing the bad team playbook like the bad team playbook as long as you actually have the discipline to stick to it of continuing to draft and develop and take on bad contracts uh, with salary cap space if you have it over a, a couple of year period again that's not yeah, take, realistic for many teams this summer but take flyer take flyers on worthy players that you think you know second draft type of guys like i'm not sure that yeah. i mean i saw exum as a negative value contract but go with that also an important part to me of the bad team playbook is if you identify a young player as not a part of your core trying hard to move them because somebody else will probably be more optimistic about them than you are those i think 
teams are way too focused on the the risk and this, this gets into like how gms keep their jobs and everything like that they're far more comfortable selling too late rather than selling too early and i mean nerland's noel i think is a really good example here and there there are a few other ones where it's like if, if, if you're pretty sure that it's they're not the guy for you then try to move them before their value just craters and um i think cleveland could end up i don't think they're necessarily there now but like if they decide that thinking about their core it's like I think I like Kevin Porter the best of their young players, and that's a big problem when you've taken two point guards in the top five in the last two years. But if I mean, if if they decide one or both of of Garland or Sexton is not the guy, I would try to move them before somebody else. Somebody else. Everybody else knows that knows what you think. Yeah, I mean, I, any player like that, it's just there isn't enough of a, of a resume, I think, from either guy right now for them to be in demand. And I think my last piece of advice to them would be you just got to be able to recognize sunk costs in the draft, right? Like, don't it, you brought in Sexton, you brought in Garland, you're going to continue to try and develop them. But again, neither of them to me in what is a point guard heavy draft has shown enough to where you say no we're not going to put someone else into this mix right now and yeah you know what there might be some unhappiness there that playing them together may not work that well um they might also just like as a general team building principle think about like the idea that passing the basketball has some value that and so does defense yeah yeah now i it's it's been a little unfair because they've kind of been in this mode where they had all these bad contracts after lebron left and i thought they did do a good job to take on the delvadova and henson contracts and get that milwaukee pick into the future last year they moved quickly on that and that was an opportunity that may not have been there later but ultimately i mean they're just so far away from being anything right now even like you know the bulls you can at least say okay hey if all four of these guys develop at least they all play different positions we're missing a three but we've got one two four five and if these guys develop we could at least be like sniffing the playoffs as these guys get older the Cavs don't even have a squint hard eighth seed right now on their roster i think and considering how expensive they are that's a, a bit of a problem maybe they could look to move drummond at well, the trade deadline there, next year there's one other thing we have to say and that is unless it is at a nothing burger salary that he wouldn't agree to do not do the harrison barnes with andre drummond do not like oh cut cut down yes. on the cut down on the 20 slash 21 salary and give him multiple years i mean even if this isn't the most inspiring center class i don't know if it is i haven't watched i haven't watched a ton of film yet i mean we talked about wiseman but we haven't talked about some of the other candidates he is i mean they're so far away that the vets on this team just aren't a part of the answer pacers are an interesting one they're kind of in this holding pattern as well maybe if there is an end to the hiatus this year they'll see with victor oladipo oladipo only one year left on his contract he is extension eligible i didn't see enough from him to want to extend him at similar money to what he's making now but they have this young team they are a team that you know in theory could be competing for home court they've got turner and sabonis and brogdon and tj warren and oladipo i mean that's a pretty nice starting five they've got enough depth that they don't really have any weaknesses like goga batadze showed some flashes as well we didn't get a great idea of how well the turner and sabonis thing works 
I certainly would be looking to move Sabonis if there is a thought that he's overvalued around the league because he made the all-star team this year. Well, so like here, here, I was thinking about this when we were kind of prepping this podcast and I would say that Turner Sabonis worked out better than I anticipated, but it did not work out better than I anticipated in a way that made me think, oh, that has to be what they do long-term. It worked out in a way like, oh, that's good to know. And maybe you still move one of them for a more modern style of team. Yeah. Now they would really need, I mean, I, I think maybe TJ Warren could play a little four, but overall he's probably not big enough, especially with Turner's defensive rebounding limitations. Warren is not a great rebounder either. They also have Jeremy Lamb, who is an important death piece that they're now just not going to be able to count on really for another year and a half, if at all, with that uh, really debilitating knee injury that he had. Justin Holiday is also a free agent at the end of this year. So their depth on the wing could be a little bit compromised. They're going to need something there. Uh, and in particular, I mean, maybe you don't want to move on from Sabonis unless there's some really good return that brings you back some wing players because he still might be your best option at the four. Right, especially because something I like about the Pacers is that their core is pretty aligned in terms of the arc of their career. I mean, their young guys, their young bigs will still get better. And But, I mean, what do you think about Brogdon? I think of him as an older 27 when he, all the injuries that he's had. And Oladipo might, you know, he doesn't have the same type of injury history as Brogdon, but if he never gets quite back to 100%, then you kind of think about that the same way. So the time is more now than moving forward. You know, like maybe, maybe they could be better in 21 or 22, but I think it is a shorter window for them to be at their best. And so moving Sabonis for something else might might weaken that in the immediate and that there is there are some real concerns there and Odipo seems happy enough I mean I, his contract situation is going to be crazy because 2021 is a year that so many teams have cap space and Oladipo has the All-NBA in his past. You know, he's had those really good years, but they're pretty far in his past. And if the 20 slash 21 season isn't his best, then I wonder how much he can drum up. So I I can imagine it being a situation where they both expect a reunion and that it is the most likely outcome. But that does get kind of dicey if you're the Pacers because all their other guys are pretty locked up. Yeah, I guess this is one of those teams where, hey, they're pretty good right now. They project to be a playoff team for the foreseeable future. I don't believe they have championship upside unless... Oladipo, Sabonis, Turner, Warren, Brogdon all really blow up then maybe you could find a, a way for them to get there. In particular, Oladipo would have to get back to 17, 18 level. I, I'm skeptical that he can do that, but it's it's always a possibility. He's been there before, but uh, it's been so long now. And he's also a little older. He's He was very reliant on athleticism for that great season. Well, and, and apart, But I think sorry. you just, you stay the course with this group. I think that's really the, all you can do right now. Especially because it's hard for them to improve. And maybe somebody overvalues something that they have. And that's always hard for us to predict because we don't know who that's going to be and where it's going to come from. But they don't have spending power in the summer of 2020. They don't really have much in the summer of 2021 either. They'll have McDermott coming off his salary and assuming they don't re-sign TJ Leaf, but then Oladipo is going to get his money. And then Brogdon, Sabonis, Turner, TJ Warren, all those guys are already locked up through at least 21-22, a lot of them beyond that. And so yeah, I think you I think you run you know you run it back to the best of your ability. Hopefully they can do well with the mid-level exception. Hopefully they can uh that if they want to bring back Justin Holiday that non-bird rights will be enough. It might be. We'll we'll see what the market bears and how many year that's a year situation. They're maybe more so than yeah. dollars. Worth noting too, they only have about 
13 million in room below the tax right now they are also out their 2020 first rounder going to the bucks from the brogdon deal so those are some uh if they're going to re-sign holiday for example then and tj mcconnell is a 3.5 million guarantee but basically everyone's under contract other than that for next year and so maybe you could bring back holiday but they will you know using the full mid-level might not be an option for them especially if they want to keep a little bit of f- flexibility for but for uh the trade market you know just just like you those sorts of trades where it's like you give up something to get a cheap player you know like kind of the burks glenn robinson trade last year for the sixers adding a little depth if you know they need that with jeremy lamb being out for next year that could be that could be a, yeah. a material concern and this might even be a team where they're not even willing to go like that close to the tax just for their profitability sure. and i mean if they're these are the type of team that we might see just overall getting squeezed financially um last thing i would say for them is try to identify we don't have time to go into who this would be right now but they've had such success bringing in guys who weren't great defenders on the wing at other stops like bogdanovich and warren try to identify some athletic players around the league you know like a kelly Oubre type of guy i mean granny's on the sun so that's a they're probably not going to trade with them again but the type of guy who has the physical tools but maybe hasn't put it together defensively and see if that player particularly has a potential combo forward either off the bench or to replace either Sabonis or Turner were they to get moved uh, I think that would be the type of thing that they could look at uh, right because they've had so much success with their system yeah the the analog for me would be the Spurs finding the next Jonathan Simmons instead of paying Jonathan Simmons like they could the, the Pacers have a track record of getting wings to defend and they should bet on that and bet on themselves again that's a great point the bucks are i mean pretty obvious you just want to be doing whatever you can to be good right now and if Giannis ends up leaving then you just take your medicine at that point uh they are if if Giannis were to leave the next draft pick that they owe after that 2020 that they gave out in the or the 2020 yeah 2020 that they gave out in the Bledsoe trade that's going to be 30th overall this year to Boston uh is the pick that they used to acquire George Hill and get off of Henson and Del Vadova but that is top 10 protected for a couple of years then it's uh, one through eight and then becomes two seconds so if they were to lose Giannis they probably would uh be able to find a way to keep that pick so that's not a significant concern you would think um but other than that it's really if Giannis were to re-sign then maybe we can talk about trying to reorient the team they also I mean Giannis if he resigns that's going to be a massive tax bill for them they've got Chris Middleton making over 30 million dollars and they'll have Giannis making over 40 million pretty tough to build a team around that that's going to be competitive and not pay the tax so that's something to consider uh but and you got to just do what you can they're perhaps the championship favorite this year so uh I mean they're they're not going to change anything before these finals but I think going into next year I guess the only question is if Giannis won't commit how do you handle that and I think you've talked about that before but it's probably worth reiterating I think you go the Kevin Durant route and and not that Kevin Durant did this because the extension system was so screwed up then that the Thunder didn't even have the chance to make that offer but you the the twin bets that you make is that you know getting having him for that season is more valuable than what you can get for him which I think especially when you consider the the amount that the Bucks have committed to other players who just make so much less sense on this team if Giannis isn't there and also that having an extra year if, if the team is successful that season will convince him to stay and the odds that they trade let's let's say theoretically Giannis was non-committal the odds that they trade Giannis 
for a package that nets anything close to what Giannis could be over the next couple, the following couple years is low. That's just not the way superstar trades generally work in the NBA. I mean, you could, whether it's young, you know, budding superstars like what James Harden was or numerous other ones in, in the past, that's just generally not the way it works. So I'm not, I wouldn't close the door on it entirely. You know, you have those clandestine things say it is not our intention to do it. You're going to have to pull us over in like a historic fashion and maybe some team yeah. just but I, I don't know what team has the that, ammunition I mean, there's no team where Giannis realistically would want to stay that has that type of value that, that you could give them right I mean and so we said this we said some more things to an extent about Kawhi but then what ended up happening was the Spurs just trade him for a package that we didn't value but the Bucks. I mean, our hope is that the Bucks do not replicate what the Spurs did there. So, first of all, by trading yeah. him. And frankly, let me, I'll tell you what. I mean, maybe Kawhi would have just straight up not played for the Spurs. But if I were a Spurs fan right now, I would have rather have just had Kawhi play for my team and have a good team and maybe a contender in the West that year and then have him leave than get the package that they got. I like Pirtle, but yeah, I mean, when, especially with the complications of DeRozan now, I think that, and, and that they've been in this weird nether region for two years. That's fair. That's a first, and there will be for another. That's a fair argument. Yeah, and I think the Bucks uh, the same way. I mean, whatever you're going to get, I mean, what would be the best package out there? Like a Warriors package of Wiggins and their first round pick this year and the Wolves pick next year and maybe another pick going into the future. You know, maybe it would be something like that. But that to me, you're just, especially if you could realistically contend for a championship in that next year, I'd rather have one year of being that awesome with Giannis and still the potential of bringing him back too uh because you know they can still offer him that designated player veteran contract even as a free agent they'll be off able to offer him over 50 million dollars more than he could get elsewhere and another year if that's what he wants and you also had this year where you might again win a championship there probably would be the championship favorite again going into next year unless well maybe the clippers would be if the clippers win it but um and this all proposes that there isn't a postseason this year and that they don't win it and they don't make it to the finals. So uh, all that, I think yeah. you just you, you just ride it out. The only thing I'll add is that what would change it is if, and I don't expect this to happen, if Giannis were to say, I am not coming back. Uh, unequivocally, I am not coming back. Like, especially after the success they had this year, then maybe you think about it a little differently, but I'm not completely sure that you do. Yeah, I mean, at that point, you just run into the the chance of him just being really unhappy. But it just doesn't seem like his personality. Exactly. Like, it's not going to happen. But, like, theoretically, that would be the only thing that would change my calculus if I were if I were John Horst. All right, well, that's we'll do it for today. Do you have anything you want to talk about before we go? If people didn't listen to it over the weekend, I recorded for Real GM Radio with uh, Curtis Harris, Pro Hoops History. We did. We talked a lot about the Hall of Fame. Not as much about the, the 2020 class, but more about how they choose the Hall of Fame and the conceptions there. And so he argued for some figures in the sport that that he thinks should be in it was a really fun conversation then i have a bunch of pieces coming out i'm working on some collaborative stuff this week for the athletic so you can check that out theathletic.com slash cap all right and stay tuned right now for covid daily news which is on this feed for at least another couple of days covid daily news april 13th 2020 solo edition today if you want to subscribe to this podcast search for covid daily news or coronavirus you can use my name nate duncan that will usually get you there since there are a lot of coronavirus podcasts 
but hopefully none that are doing quite what we are. Our idea here is that we spend hours a day reading the news, curating the most important stories for you, whether it's USA, worldwide, the most important studies, and focus on the information that's most important in trying to determine where this is all going in these next few months worldwide. We are not ad supported at the moment, but if you want to support the show, the best way to do so right now is Patreon, patreon.com slash Duncan LaRue. There's a link to that in my Twitter bio at Nate Duncan NBA. So I came across a, a good article in NPR today I wanted to start with on just how to do your grocery shopping safely. I found that an extremely stressful experience the times that I've had to do it. So NPR Act asked infectious disease, virology, and food safety experts to share their tips about safe grocery shopping. I, I found this informative. The big concern isn't necessarily from the food and contaminated surfaces. It is possible to contract the virus from contaminated surfaces, but the big problem is going to be from respiratory droplets, which you're exposed to when you're around other people. Because yes, it is possible to contract the virus from contaminated surfaces, but that's only going to happen if you don't wash your hands and then you touch some sort of orifice where the virus could gain a foothold. So the way I think about it is contaminated surfaces, that's, that's that's within your control even if you touch a contaminated surface number one has to be exactly the spot where someone's respiratory droplets hit or that someone else who had respiratory droplets on their hands touched and then you need to not wash your hands and then you need to transmit the virus into your body in some fashion so as long as you are washing your hands before you touch your face the risk of getting it from a contaminated surface is going to be minimal according to this article big way to minimize the risk is to the extent that you can maintain social distancing while you're in the store grocery stores that are limiting the number of shoppers who are allowed to go in at one time that's good there might be a long line outside but hopefully once you're inside that will lead to an avoidance uh, of crowding and it may not always be possible to stay six feet away from someone within the store but if you have to pass by someone do it quickly try to get out of others way of course you'll want to wear a face covering if you have a, a mask in particular even cloth face masks can help some stores even requiring shoppers to wear them which is a great idea and that would be the sort of store you would want to seek out we've discussed uh, why masks help another thing that they suggest is go by yourself to the extent that you can you're going to add to more crowding in the aisles and you potentially raise your household's risk of infection. If you bring three people instead of one, now you're tripling your chances of infection. And even if you have roommates, maybe you can come to some sort of arrangement where one of you every week shops for the other two or something like that. When you're in the store, you definitely want to sanitize the handles of your cart or your basket. You can bring your own hand sanitizer or disinfecting wipes. And of course, do not touch your face while you're there until you've sanitized your hands again. Another tip from Dr. Angela Rasmussen was don't use your cell phone when you're in the store. That's a great way to get your hands next to your face. Maybe write out a list of things that you need rather than having it on your phone. Another piece of advice from the experts is that gloves don't really do much for you. It's really more about sanitizing your hands. If you are wearing gloves, though, the way to remove them is you grab them from the inside and your palm side and you pull them out 
like you're pulling off a sock so you end up turning them inside out you also want to give the cashier some space and i realize some of these may be pretty obvious to a lot of people listening to this so feel free to skip to the end of this segment if you think you know all this stuff but stand as far away from the cashier as you can if you can use no touch payment like apple pay or google pay cash should be avoided that can harbor a lot of microorganisms although we don't specifically know how long the coronavirus survives on cash hopefully you can do it in a way where you're not touching a keypad but regardless of the transaction type make sure that you sanitize your hands after the transaction one thing that i thought was nice is that they don't recommend going crazy disinfecting your groceries all the experts at npr consulted say that disinfecting hand washing every item in your grocery haul isn't really necessary again it's really more about just making sure that you are washing your hands regularly after touching groceries dr aronoff notes that that's dr david aronoff the director of the division of infectious diseases at vanderbilt university medical center he notes that after 24 hours the vast majority of virus on a surface is no longer infectious and after 72 hours the virus is trace or undetectable on most surfaces and if you know you're not going to use something for two or three days you can just put it away wash your hands and go about your day but you definitely want to wipe down your countertops after you unpack if you do want to wash your groceries they recommend sticking to soap and water those disinfecting wipes and sprays are, are meant to be used on hard surfaces many of the plastics or cardboard used for food packaging it's not that necessarily if you're going to rinse your produce do it in plain water cold water that's better than using soap if you ingest soap residue that could lead to diarrhea or vomiting and one of the experts quoted said there's just no evidence that these foods can transmit the virus or can cause covid19 should you shower or change clothes after shopping probably not necessary for adults but the quote from dr rasmussen is that people with small children might consider otherwise since kids aren't as concerned about where they put their mouth or their hands and if you're ordering grocery delivery online the experts say the advice is the same as if you just go to the store yourself so hopefully that's a a way to de-stress the grocery buying process for some of us and i think my biggest takeaway is just trying to avoid other people while you're there as the biggest way to minimize your risk let's turn now to more u.s news and unfortunately there's been more about supply chains that needs to be shared smithfield foods which is the world's biggest pork processor is shutting a u.s plant in sioux falls south dakota it's one of the nation's largest pork processing facilities it's going to remain closed indefinitely after 293 workers tested positive for coronavirus so that was at the urging of the governor and mayor the plant employs 3700 workers it produces about 130 million servings of food per week and half of South Dakota's coronavirus cases are now related to that plant. This plant produces 4 to 5% of the USA's pork supply. And Smithfield's CEO warned that closures are going to be threatening the U.S. meat supply. And I'm not sure what the solution is here. Much of the reporting that I've read about meat processing in general indicates that the workers have to stand pretty close together. For these assembly lines, they can try to socially distance them. That's going to slow down production if they have to do that. I'm sure it doesn't come as a surprise to many that workers in meatpacking plants don't make a ton of money. Apparently, some employers are even offering cash bonuses to retain workers at this point in time. There have also been a number of reports, including in a New York Times article, that many farms are just having to waste food 
This goes back to what we talked about, Ben and I, last week about the change in demand and supply chains. For example, U.S. consumers eat far more fresh vegetables when they eat out than at home. And I'm sure that that's being exacerbated too by the fact that you don't want to be going to the grocery store that often. Fresh vegetables and and fruit, it's not going to last for a week or two if you're trying to minimize your trips to the grocery store. So people are definitely eating fewer fruits and vegetables. Uh, that's led to a lot of these producers just not having the demand. There's a, uh, In that New York Times report, there's a discussion that farmers are just replowing their plants back into the fields because these vegetables that they have no demand for are just there's nowhere to store them we don't have the infrastructure for that and there isn't the demand for anyone to buy them there's a report of a dairy farmer just dumping milk into a pond because they have nowhere else to put it the cows need to be milked twice a day and dairy demand is down schools for example were huge consumers of dairy those school lunches now those aren't being consumed much of the supply infrastructure for dairy is for restaurants when you just even consider the packaging same with vegetables cheese consumers just aren't gonna buy pounds and pounds of cheese at once but that's how it's packaged to supply restaurants or consumers aren't gonna buy little four ounce cardboard containers of milk that school kids will drink i also came across an interview with one uh goker Iden, who's a professor of operations management at johns hopkins business school and he elucidated some of the problems that producers are having he did emphasize that he doesn't think there's a shortage in the food chain that we have the manufacturing transportation storage to deal with these consumer packaged goods he says quote there's no fundamentally broken piece of the food supply chain at least as of the time he did this interview about a week ago but he also discussed the idea that companies are going to have to make investments to address the shifting demand we talked about it with toilet paper for example our toilet paper producers are they going to shift to making consumer focused as opposed to business focused products well if you do that how long is this supposed to go on for you make all these investments to make that change and then once you finally ramped up you do that for a couple months and then we're back to a more normal operating procedure and now you just spend all this money for a couple of months worth of sales so businesses have to decide whether that's really worth it many of them may decide that it's not i didn't also discuss the concept of shifting bottlenecks if you have this supply chain that operates in a number of stages and we've seen this for example with testing where you have swabs reagents all right we got more swabs well now what's the next bottleneck to increasing production and we're seeing that in all of these supply chains that really need to increase their production and of course it's not just in the u.s from a food standpoint india farmers are suffering from these same sorts of issues and the u.s frankly is probably going to be the best off because we are a food surplus producing nation and then you throw in that any reports of shortages are probably going to lead people to want to hoard more of those items uh, and it becomes a, a perpetuating cycle but uh, while i've been largely dismissive of these ideas that the cure can be worse than the disease if we really do start having worldwide food shortages yeah the cure is going to be worse than the disease at that point so there definitely needs to be a priority placed on 
on how to allow these essential businesses to function in a safe way so that you don't have plants closing due to massive outbreaks of coronavirus. In New York, Governor Andrew Cuomo said that he believed the worst is over. Hospitalizations appear to be reaching a plateau. The daily increase in deaths was 671. That was the lowest number of dead in about a week. Now, we have noted that For whatever reason, the numbers of deaths appear to be lower Saturday, Sunday, Monday. Nate Silver has noted this. So you do want to wait until the middle of the week generally to declare that there really is a trend. New York Mayor Bill de Blasio. Sorry for uh, having mispronounced that, by the way, in previous episodes. and, And thank you to those who corrected my pronunciation cited statistics that the number of virus patients admitted to the city's hospitals dropped 17 percent from saturday to sunday and there was a slight drop in the number of people in intensive care units in the city's public hospitals i've appreciated them clarifying this i had questions about earlier that it's not necessarily new hospitalizations it sounds like they are now quoting the overall number of people in intensive care and there's also a decline in the percentage of people who tested positive And these are slight declines, but an indication that they may be reaching a plateau. Cuomo also had a joint presser with the governors of five other East Coast states, Connecticut, Delaware, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Rhode Island. And they are going to try to work together to come up with recommendations to restart the region's economy within the next couple of weeks. Dr. Robert Redfield, who is the director for the American CDC, said on the Today Show Monday that he expects reopening to play out community by community and county by county within the U.S., but that the U.S., and I think this is obvious to just about everyone, that the U.S. will first need to, quote, substantially augment our health capacity to do early case identification, isolation, and contact tracing We are plateaued right now. Scott Gottlieb says we need to get up to 750,000 per week. My thought is that it really needs to be getting to the point where just about anyone can get a coronavirus test at any time and have it at home and you have multiple tests available per week to everyone. I mean, that, that to me is really what we need to get to, but we are so, so far away from that. And what Gottlieb has been saying is, We have at this point ramped up to about the capacity that we could have with existing testing capability with with these big lab testing companies, for example. But now there needs to be a plan to really increase capacity. New labs have got to come online. And again, it's not entirely clear what the mechanism is going to be for that to occur. A New York Times article also consulted a, a number of economists and What that article has noted that even in places without specific lockdown orders, Americans are avoiding restaurants, airports, shopping centers, and the economic consensus seems to be that until Americans feel confident that the risks of the virus have fallen, either through this much improved testing system or ultimately via vaccine, the issue of whether there are government restrictions may ultimately be irrelevant in terms of actually allowing an economic recovery. What would really be terrible is if We were to reopen just enough to cause more virus outbreaks, but not enough to actually really make a dent in the economic pain. Ben and I talked about the Navajo Nation and the developing situation there with the risks due to the relatively bad economic situation and also some of the prevalence of underlying conditions in that community. The Navajo Nation now, over the weekend, instituted a curfew at 8 p.m. Friday that lasted until 5 a.m. on Monday. 
It was enacted after officials observed that a lot of people were ignoring the Navajo Nation's existing stay-at-home order and police started enforcing the curfew with pine fines and other penalties. 250,000 people live in the Navajo Nation, which is mostly in northeastern Arizona. They have 698 confirmed cases and 24 deaths. We can turn to the global economic situation. The IMF has called this now the worst financial crisis since 1930, eclipsing that 2008 financial crisis. That's per the head of the IMF, Kristalina Georgieva. I think I did okay on that one. A UN study earlier this week said that 81% of the world's workforce of 3.3 billion people had their place of work fully or partly closed because of the outbreak. That's incredible. 81%. And the expectation is that emerging markets, developing countries, they're going to be the hardest hit. They're going to require hundreds of billions of dollars in foreign aid. And while I'm certain that in the richer countries, there may be some chafing at having to do that, as what's become a familiar refrain on this show, if there are places in the world where the coronavirus is spreading unabated, that's going to hinder any kind of a resuscitation of the global economy, regardless of whether an individual nation appears to have the coronavirus under control. Sobering numbers that they, as of three months ago, the IMF had expected positive per capita income growth in 160 countries. And now it is projected that 170 countries will experience negative per capita income growth this year. The last 20 or 30 years have seen great strides in the developing world of people being lifted out of poverty. But Oxfam, which is a US or sorry, a UK based charity organization warned that as many as half a billion people could be forced into poverty as a result of this outbreak. Some good news though, at least in my opinion, the World Bank managing director said that the G20 and the G7 had been largely supportive of the desire for the World Bank and the IMF to allow a temporary halt in debt payments. Uh, The quote from managing director Axel van Trotsenberg, everyone understands that we need to help the poorest countries. There's a huge willingness. Nobody is questioning that absolutely nobody i think we're in a good place to move forward and the g20 is expected to back a temporary suspension of debt payments Italy and Spain have continued their flattening of of the curve. Lowest number of coronavirus deaths in Italy since March 19th. 431 fatalities in the last 24 hours. That's down from 619 the previous day. Again, they may be subject to this weekend bias, but nonetheless, that seems like a very significant decrease. The death toll in Italy, just under 20,000 now. And Spain is going to look to restart some activities, including construction and manufacturing, but the rest of Spain remains in lockdown. Shops, bars, and public spaces are set to stay closed until at least April 26th. Russia now has 2,500 new cases as of today, 18,000 total. Vladimir Putin has been talking about using the army to assist it in certain areas. Not clear exactly what the function there is going to be. The city of Moscow launched a website to facilitate a permit system that it seeks to start operating on Wednesday. Residents will have to get permission before using public public transport or their own cars or other vehicles and they apparently issued over a million of these permits already despite some issues with the rollout of that system belarus not a country that's in the news a ton but their president alexander lukashenko has had a number of curious quotes he said nobody will die from coronavirus and he has repeatedly rejected any lockdown measures he is 
previously dismissed worries about the disease as a psychosis and he has suggested drinking vodka going to saunas and driving tractors as methods to fight the virus belarus has kept its borders totally open soccer matches are still being played in front of spectators churches have remained open as the eastern orthodox easter easter approaches on april 19th the health ministry has reported 2900 cases and 29 deaths in belarus but lukashenko said those fatalities don't count because there were underlying health conditions in the patients therefore he says i say that not a single person died purely from the coronavirus and lukashenko also says if a person stays positive they will be healthy that really reminds me of some of the propaganda from the influenza virus back in 1918 when some newspapers and officials alleged that fear of the virus was the the biggest problem britain they are still on the upswing in terms of their number of cases and deaths british officials said that they expect a plateau in about two to three weeks india this is a little bit more anecdotal but one report indicated that people in Dharavi, which is a, a huge poor densely packed area in mumbai the government is handing out free food but uh, for this lockdown but apparently people are just standing shoulder to shoulder in lines to get this free food which seems like it kind of defeats the purpose of it a little bit nigeria has extended their lockdown another two weeks uh, they have 323 confirmed cases 71 percent of them are in lagos which is a, a 20 a mega city of over 20 million people and their capital territory of abuja they've had 10 deaths uh, so far nigerian president buhari his quote was it's a matter of life and death the repercussions of any premature end of the lockdown action are unimaginable all right that will do it for today thanks so much for listening ben will be back tomorrow we usually can get into a few more topics when he's here if you want to subscribe just search nate duncan covid nate duncan coronavirus that's probably the easiest way to find it since unfortunately everybody else with a coronavirus podcast had the same idea for naming and search optimization that i did a, a review very much appreciated we've already got almost 80 reviews most of them quite positive and you can support this endeavor patreon.com slash duncan the and the absolute best thing you can do to support this endeavor is to tell your friends uh, about this podcast we want to give you a chance to relax the rest of your day you listen to the show then you don't have to obsess about the news because that's what ben and i are doing for you thanks again for listening we'll talk to you all tomorrow till then